Welcome to our On Point special podcast series. This is episode three of our weekly conversations with news analyst Jack Beatty, where Jack brings us his truly unique insights on America in our current political moment. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty, and hello again, Jack. Hello, Meghna. Okay, so drum roll and headline, please, Jack. What are we going to talk about today? Well, one word, captured. And more on that anon um, as, as, as we go on. <laughs> captured. Okay, but n- captured. now I can't wait. Captured in the, like, in the what, the political sense? What? In the political sense. Let me, let, me, let me just define the problem. The problem for Democrats, a raft of polls lately uh, has documented a deterioration, a, a sharp fall in minority working class support for uh, Mr. Biden. Here is the dimension of the fall. Obama uh, beat Romney among working class minority voters. He beat Romney by 67 points. Mm-hmm. Biden beat Trump in 220 by 48 points. Now, Biden leads Trump among working class minority voters by a mere 16 points. Wow, wow. That's a fall of 51 points since uh, Obama in 2012. Uh, well, Jack, can he, I just ask a quick, down, so yes, that's, sure. that's a huge drop, right? And, and you said it was a raft of polling, so this isn't just from one poll, it's from several? Oh, no, it's, okay. a, oh, it's all over the, yeah, there's a pew, there's a... Uh, uh, Sien- Times, Siena, there, it, it, on and on. So consistency, Nate Cohn, yeah. Okay, go consistency. ahead. Consistency. Th- this is a trend for sure, um, and indeed, uh, among non-white voters as a whole, which is a bigger than simply non-white working class voters, uh, Biden is down twenty points over what he was in twenty twenty, uh, and of course, it it raises the question: Why? Yeah. <laughs> What's happened? <laughs> And, and specifically, sorry to jump in there, Jack, but I just want to be sure I'm understanding what you're saying correctly. Um, when we say minorities, are you, are you specifically saying working class, black and Hispanic voters? Yes, I am. Non-college okay. uh, uh, minority voters are working class voters, as they're called in these polls. And their support? Working class minority. Okay. Yes. And their support is cl- for Biden is uh, has really strikingly deteriorated. Okay, so now you ask the question, and I'll, and I'll repeat it. Why? Well, uh, two hypotheses are offered. One is, uh, quote, it's the social issue. It's culture, stupid. That's one. And the second one is from Huey Long. Let's talk about the first uh, diagnosis. This is really uh, comes from uh, Rui Tashira, a friend of this program, been on several times. Uh, he, uh, on Substack, uh, has a letter called The Liberal Patriot, and in a series of columns, he's laid out data, uh, poll after poll, survey after survey, that shows a, a split between what white progressive voters want and, uh, the, and, and black and Hispanic working class voters' view uh, on, on issue after issue, from affirmative action to uh, abortion. For example, only a third of working of minority working class voters are with anything like the Green New Deal. They have deep reservations about the transition 
uh, to a sustainable economy. Uh, 60% of working class minority voters say racism is individual. It's an individual flaw versus 80% of white progressives who say it's a structural problem. Uh -huh. Transgender, 70% of, um, of minority working class voters say we don't want transgender athletes on teams, 70%, 70% of white progressives say, yes, we do. Affirmative action, 60% of white of minority working class voters say we're against it. 60% or more of progressives, white progressives say we're for it. There's this sharp split. It's the culture uh, stupid says Teixeira. Uh, uh, it, it's all the, it's what's happened to the Democratic Party. It's focused on Biden. It's not just Biden's fault, and that's that's going to yeah. hurt them. So uh, that's yeah. Jack. I'm so sorry to interrupt, but the 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 sort of smorgasbord of evidence that you just put in front of us. Uh, I have to ask a couple of questions about that before we get to Huey Long. Um, it sounds like the the issues where there's this huge divide between white progressives and working class black and Hispanic Democrats or voters um, is also compounded by an educational divide, right? Because um, maybe I'm wrong about this, but generally when one considers who were, who white progressives are, you're thinking of college-educated white progressives. Am, am I wrong to think that? You're, you're, you're right. Okay. You're right. Uh, and in, and in, latest, in the latest polls, college-educated voters, including progressives, favor Biden by 22 points. So, yes, he's, uh -huh. he's, done very, he's doing very well among college-educated Democrats and even voters as a whole. Yeah. But the picture that emerges, and of course, long since have the Democrats suffered an erosion by, from white working class voters. Trump carried them in 35 of 50 states in the last election. Uh, but, but, but joining that, you now have a fall in support from uh, working class minority voters, leading to the hypothesis that the Democrats are becoming, quote, what Thomas Piketty calls the Brahmin left. Mm -hmm. That is a left party without working class voters. Yeah. And it sounds like the way that that to use your language again, or Thomas Piketty's language, the Brahmin left, the issues that they care about, or at least the way they talk about those issues, is not the way that uh, that those Black and Hispanic voters uh, would talk about or or hear those issues. And it's not may not even be the things they care about or that are most relevant in their lives. So, do you have any sense if the if Democratic leadership is paying attention to these same polls because? It would. I would think that this should raise a ten-alarm fire if you're in the DNC. Yes, uh, but uh, I, you know, I think they they just view well. Here, here I'm getting to my captured yeah. hypothesis. Yeah. <laughs> they just essentially Biden got ninety-two percent of the black uh, vote, <clears throat> uh, and uh, as long ago as a generation ago, a Princeton political scientist, Paul Freimer called African-Americans a captured minority. That, that is to say, the Democrats have them. And they don't have to, they feel, or, they, or at least the record shows, and I'll get to that, they don't deliver for them. So in a way, you've got, Fryer says you've got, Fryer says you've got, uh, blacks are ignored by one party at the best when they're not 
doing, you know, dog whistles for, for racism. They're, but black voters are taken for granted yes. by the Democrats. Yes. And, and, you know, he, Republicans want to uphold the racial, the racial, racial status quo. Democrats don't want to be seen as racially too liberal. The result is they pocket, they capture the black vote and don't deliver. That's the Huey Long idea. Huey Long said, a demagogue is a politician who don't keep his promises. Joe Biden came into office promising minority voters voting rights legislation to roll back the attack on minority voting rights in the red states. He promised police reform in the, in the absence, in the, in, the, in the wake of the George Floyd massive demonstrations, largest in a, in a generation of 2020. And for Hispanic voters, especially a clear path to citizenship for undocumented immigrants. None of those things have happened. Instead, inflation has happened and mortgage rates have gone up. The result, only about a third of black working class voters say Biden's policies have delivered for them. Uh-huh. So, Jack, let me, I've got to jump in here because I absolutely hear what you're saying between the uh, black and, and Hispanic voters feel like they've been taken for granted by the Democratic Party. That's something we've heard on the show frequently from those very same voters. But to be fair... I mean, we're in a political system right now because it's, you know, partisanship and power battles at all costs, especially from the GOP, that, you know, Biden could have promised next to nothing or he could have promised the moon or whatever. No matter what he promised, it was going to be next to impossible to deliver it because of Congress. Right. So is it really fair for those voters to to put Biden on the hook for things that he didn't deliver because he could not? Yes, but he promised them. And, uh -huh. and, you know, and, 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 you know, I've gone back and looked at the clips and on two of these things, police reform, well, really on all of them, uh, central was the filibuster. And all through 2021, Biden was, oh, no, I want to keep the filibuster. It's an important institutional when it was clear that the filibuster was going to stop voting rights. It was going to stop uh, immigration reform. It was going to stop George Floyd police reform. It was clear. And he kept to it up until 2022 by when Joe Manchin and Kristen Sinema, the two senators who did not vote to change the who kept the status quo on the filibuster Democrats, they had dug in their position. So Biden essentially let that, you know, why did he think the filibuster was so important that he had to hold on to it? I don't know. Yeah. Uh, you know, but it was a mistake. And it was and you can look back and see in uh, the Black Lives Matter uh, uh, people writing about this, that but why is Biden doing this? Why is he not coming dealing with our issues now? Uh -huh. And it's a good question. He yeah. didn't. And, and now they're paying the price. I see. This is so interesting, Jack. So I, I, now I understand what you're saying. Like Biden had a chance regarding the filibuster that could have pushed a lot of legislation through, but he declined because of his belief in the sanctity of the United States Senate, I guess. Talk about capture, right? He's, he's captured by oh. his own history in that institution. <laughs> but, oh, absolutely. You know, I just wonder if, um, if, again, the leadership in the Democratic Party, those actually, you know, white progressive elite um, could even hear this message that the the social issues that they're talking about um, just don't ring true in the same way uh, with 
with the very voters that they want uh, to uh, to get their support in this next election. I mean, do you dare to even uh, do a little prognostication about what impact this might have in 2024 or changes that the Democrats should make? Because, I mean, I'm rambling on, Jack, but I'm just really I'm just trying to um, uh, sort out in in my head here that this is a huge divide. The numbers are screamingly loud, but oh, I'm going to go out on a limb here and say there's another form of capture, and that is those very same white Democratic elite that are captured by the the ideas that do not ring true at all to these black and Hispanic voters. Yes, and uh, you know, should should uh, should there be sister soldier moments in which Biden says, "Oh, I'm against trans rights." Good Lord, no! Or you know, I don't like. But, but you know, affirmative action is gone, and maybe for the Democrats on the long term, that's a good thing. And then another thing, in in 2022, ominously, black turnout was sharply down in Pennsylvania. In in uh, Wisconsin, in Michigan, et cetera. Bad sign. And further bad sign, one in five young black voters say voted Republican in 2022. That's 20%. Now, does that augur a future in which both parties bid for the black for the black vote? And wouldn't that be much healthier for black Americans to be able to have some bargaining power? Maybe one party would deliver for them if there was pressure for their vote uh, from the other party. Yeah. And amongst uh, Latino or Hispanic voters, we've heard for quite some time and seen for quite some time that uh, the, there's a real complexity of views and beliefs in the Hispanic electorate in, in this country. And I don't think Democrats recognize enough that there may be voters in that electorate who uh, very readily support uh, economic progressivism, but not so readily support uh, the kind of social progressivism uh, that is now popular amongst uh, white elite progressives. But you know, Jack, I don't necessarily just want to talk uh, at or about people. I also want to give people a chance to, you know, tell us about their lives uh, and what they think about these discussions. So for folks listening right now, if you are a, a black or, or Hispanic voter um, and working class or even not uh, just black or Hispanic voter and you voted for Biden uh, in 2020, what are you thinking about now for the 2024 election and why? I also want to know what you think about this, the importance of the of these social questions that Jack has been raising. And do you hear, do you think the Democratic Party hears you uh, if your beliefs are a little bit different uh, than what DNC leadership might uh, might advance here. So definitely want to hear from you. What you do is you should pick up your phone and get the Vox Pop, the On Point Vox Pop app. And if you don't already have it, just get onto your app store and look for On Point Vox Pop and send us your thoughts. Okay. Definitely want to hear that. Um, Jack, anything else that you think we should understand about this cratering of support from uh, working class Black and Latino voters? It's just how ironic it is. You know, uh, Joe Biden is not an Ivy League graduate. <laughs> kind of rare. Well, well, the last one was uh, Ronald Reagan. Uh, he, he's, he's a sort of ordinary person. He's, he's Joe from Scranton. And uh, it, of all people, 
to have this long running problem, because after all, Bill Clinton, what did he do? He delivered welfare reform and the crime bill. That didn't help African-Americans. He pocketed their vote. They were captured. It's such an ir irony that Joe Biden should seem to be having to pay uh, for the sins of a whole generation of Democrats who uh, have not have not served African-American voters well. Huh. Really interesting. Now I'm going to start having to read more deeply into uh, different parts of the Democratic electorate, especially, and see where, where folks are thinking uh, or what they're thinking and feeling now. So, by the way, uh, when I call out for these uh, listener uh, responses to these podcasts, Jack, I want everyone to know that we do listen to them all uh, and we use them. Uh, because last week, when you were talking about sacrifice and the Trump voter, we actually got some really great uh, stories and reflections, which we are going to hear right after this quick break. Support for the On Point podcast comes from Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. Ditch the busy work and use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash on point. That's Indeed.com slash on point. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. The world's clean energy future relies on ancient elements still in the ground. Without mining, there will not be a clean energy transition. But pulling them out of the ground comes at an environmental and human cost. Mining is intrusive, but the results are the building blocks for products that we use every single day. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. Join me for Elements of Energy, Mining for a Green Future. Five consecutive episodes right here. So make sure you're following this podcast. Okay, Jack, we're back. And as promised, before we wrap up today, um, we did receive a lot of interesting personal uh, reflections from last week's episode when you talked about the sacrifices that Trump supporters feel they've made in standing by Trump. So I threw that lesson, that uh, question out to listeners. And first of all, Jack, I have to say, people are so brave and dignified when they share their stories about whatever in their lives with us. So here's the first one we got. This is from Liz Pike, and she lives in Phoenix, Arizona. And she told us about growing up in a fundamentalist Mennonite church. In like 2005, 2006 maybe, the pastor said we had to support the Iraq war because the Bible said we had to support our government. And I just thought, that makes no sense, then the Iraqis are supporting their government and we're all just killing each other in the name of obedience. And I tried to express that to my husband and friend who were with me at the time and got totally shut down. And I just realized this mentality says that you're bad and everyone else is bad, but we can save you and we can protect you from other people that need to be attacked or eliminated. Now, I want to clarify something. We didn't just ask for responses from people who were or are supporters of Donald Trump about their sacrifices. We actually broadened it out a, a little bit because I asked if listeners knew themselves or anyone they knew, if they'd ever been involved with any kind of group that had such a strict belief system that they lost friends, family, and what did it take them to 
pull out of that group. And interestingly, the responses we got were from people uh, uh, of faith, actually. This rung especially true with them. So back to Liz, actually. She also suffered abuse by a church camp counselor who happened to be her older brother. And here's where it gets really difficult because her family refused and still does to acknowledge that her brother uh, abused her. And instead, they've doubled down in their beliefs in the church and in her brother. My aunt prominently displayed a picture of my brother at a family reunion. And another aunt gave someone an award for being a best family member of the year. And there was a picture of him shaking hands with Matt Gates. So I get this is long, but it says to me that when we are convinced the darkness is out there and we must fight it, then we can't see the darkness within ourselves, our own communities, our own structures, and thus the darkness or what we consider evil, which is actually humans behaving in ways that don't help living things. It just keeps continuing. Thank you. What do you think, Jack? Oh, Ms. Pike, uh, what a sad uh, story. Um, and, and that tracks, although, again, we need to emphasize this isn't about, a, you know, a lapsed Trump voter. This is about someone in a religious group. But it does track uh, <clears throat> the, the idea of the family division, mm-hmm. which we heard strikingly from Trump voters and which defined for many of them the essence of the sacrifice uh, they were making for, uh, for Mr. Trump. And we can also hear in, the, in, the, in this denial how when, you're, when, you're, when you have a vested moral interest, as this family did in protecting their idea of their, of their son and brother— and, you know, they have to deny a fact, you know, there's got to be a denial of reality. Yeah. And that that, too, I think, follows very closely the the, the, the Trump situation of where you just deny the reality of Trump's uh, egregiousness because you've defended it. You've gone out on a limb for it. You've sacrificed. Exactly. For it. OK, so here's another story. This one comes from Jonathan Graham, and he lives in Los Alamos, New Mexico now. Uh, And he told us that he grew up as an evangelical Christian in the Southern Baptist Church in Oklahoma. And uh, it was the entirety of his life uh, as a child and a young man. From the moment that he was seven years old and remembers being saved. I prayed four times a day. I read the Bible more than once. I was baptized twice. I have no idea how many times I walked up in front of the congregation to recommit my life to Christ. And I believed without a doubt that the Bible was the literal word of God. Um, But one day in my college years, I felt like the Spirit was guiding me either to completely give up sinning, which I was having a lot of trouble with, or do something totally insane. And that's when I realized that what I had been told, what I had believed, was the Holy Spirit was just another facet of my own mind. And later, I would come to understand that I had fallen for that lie and that I was delusional. So I hear in that story from Jonathan that doubt, triggered by anything, is the, the, is the tiny prick that begins to let a different sense of feeling or possibility into a person who has a very, very strictly defined 
worldview. So Jonathan also told us that when he began feeling that doubt, he then began finding inconsistencies in other religious texts, which led him to eventually doubt and distrust the very book that had been the foundation of his life. The next step after that was realizing, well, if that book's a lie, um, why not the Bible? I stopped going to church regularly. That sort of tapered off for me. I remember having over a period of at least five years horrible nightmares that I was going to hell. And, you know, that's how I got out of it. And now I believe without a doubt that there is no God. Thinking about your conversation with Jack um, about Trump's followers and, and would they ever uh, stop being loyal to him. I think that, you know, if and when they ever come to the realization that he's been lying to them, uh, that's when they'll leave. Thanks for listening. So, Jack, um, I am just moved by the tenderness with which Jonathan told us his story, and you can still feel mm. it. He feels it deeply. Mm. But mm. I respectfully disagree with him about how much this applies to uh, people who support Donald Trump, because Trump has lied continuously for mm-hmm. half a decade, more than half a decade now. And um, his his most ardent supporters are impervious to those lies, or the lies are part of um, why they love him. What do you think about that? Yes. Uh, you know, I think what uh, what he's describing is something, is, is, in some, is, is consonant with them in a certain way. He's talking about ideological totalism. Mm-hmm. You're in for the whole nine yards, all the Bible. You know, I, it, it, it organizes your whole life. Now, nothing like that happens with political affiliation. But increasingly, aren't we finding out that party differences define differences in identity? in something very fundamental about people that they can't give up without ceasing to be themselves. Uh, You know, there's that Kierkegaard line, how can I be myself in the presence of the truth? (laughs) You know, it's, it's it's a problem if you're bought into lies to be yourself suddenly in the presence of the truth. Oh, okay. So there's one more here, Jack. Uh, A woman named Ann Coleman sent us her story. She's a licensed social worker in Michigan. And uh, she's not equating Trump supporters to a cult specifically, but our conversation actually triggered some memories in her about a group she was involved with. They were Her family was deeply involved in a private school with a very strict set of beliefs, that ideological uh, totalism that you mentioned, Jack. She says that wasn't exactly a cult either, but definitely cult-like. The concept of cults and sacrifice is really... Um important to me. We sacrificed relationships um, outside of the school system and school community and didn't talk to friends for years. And what it took for us to be pulled away was when my son refused to attend school. He hid in the bushes outside of school and refused to go in. And I knew something was serious and up. And um, I had to take him out of school and ask him what was going on. And he just told me how much he hated it. And I had to start investigating and found out that there were some abuses going on and naturally pulled him immediately. Um, And for me, it was the real, what actually got me was seeing how my son has, had been a bright eyed, um, talk to anybody, curious about life, enthusiastic kind of little kid. And he had shut down and wasn't the same person. 
So seeing your child in pain is enough to wake anybody up, right? And and that's the thing that really uh, got Anne to want to pull back from this school. I, I would say, though, that I, I don't, again, there's a only limited amount of uh, uh, of a metaphor that we can draw between these circumstances because I don't think that um, any you know, steadfast uh, supporter of Donald Trump thinks that their beliefs are harming them or harming anybody else. But nevertheless, Anne, because she's a social worker, really wanted us to share one last thing. And and sort of it's her answer to the question of how do you help someone out of a system of belief that's harming them? What you do as a family member is you validate their sacrifice and you remind them of what life used to be like. And that really hits home for me because my memory of what my son used to be like is what pulled me out of this group. But really saying to someone, I love you, that same message that Trump gives, I love you. And I remember when I really miss those times. I really miss you. That is the message that will get people back. And I hope whatever next piece you do around this, I really hope that's the message that you can give to listeners. You know, Jack, I was really moved by Anne's calling for uh, validation uh, and mm-hmm. and love because I think mm-hmm. in the political world that we're living in now, those are the two things that are the absolute hardest for us to give each other across political yes, divides, yes, right? Yes, yes, validation and love. Good Lord, uh, yes. You, you know, because I was even. I, even yeah. No, you go ahead, Jack. I'm so sorry. I, I was just going to say, even common respect is more and more difficult, and 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 the, and Trump supporters are especially uh, neuralgic about what they call the scorn they meet with. You know, people say, "Oh, you stupid idiot! How could you do this?" Not validating them, but but in fact, uh, uh, you know, uh, chastising them for their loyalties. You know, in, in listening to Anne, she said, tell them what life used to be like. But here's the complication there. That's part of Trump's central appeal. Uh-huh. Make America great again, again, restore something. So he's, he, he, I think in a strange way, even though people have to give up a lot in the present, he's saying, remember what it used to be like when, you know, people like you were... Uh, you know, the dominant uh, people in America, and uh, you didn't have to worry about all these minorities and uh, and and Democrats with their, uh, you know, demands for uh, justice to this group. And that you, you were on top, you white folks. Uh, uh, make America, make it again. He's He's kind of got that theme uh, locked in. Yeah, totally. I think Anne was also saying, though, that you tell the person that you care about I miss the person you you used to be, right? Yes. Yeah. yeah. So yep. you keep picking topics, Jack, that we can talk about for hours on end. <laughs> but they're really resonating with folks. So I wanted to share uh, what people, what folks had shared with us. Now, before we run out of time, Jack, what is up for next week? Ep- next week's episode with you. Blue collar blues. We're going to talk about the with the UAW strike. We're going to use that as a as a prism to look through the situation of uh, blue-collar workers in America and the the constant uh, battle they they wage to affirm their dignity and the fear they have of being lost in transition to the new economy. Okay. Well, once again, folks, 
If that wasn't enough to convince you you should subscribe to the On Point newscast, I don't know what is because Jack is a star. So go into your podcast feed or wherever you get your podcast and just subscribe to On Point because Jack's next episode is coming a week from now on next Friday. Jack, thank you as always. Thank you, Magda. I'm Magna Chakrabarty, and this is On Point. Point.